This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by octopuses. Do you wish tarantulas lived underwater? Try octopuses today. Welcome to episode 51 of the Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. It is Friday, July 2nd, and we've got a really interesting topic for you today. You can subscribe to the Sweaty Penguin on Apple, Spotify, Google, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review, and you will get a shout-out at the end of the show. The other way to get a shout-out? Join our Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll also get access to some Sweaty Penguin swag, exclusive bonus content and more. You can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash the sweaty penguin. The sweaty penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from PBS flagship station, the WNET group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash peril and promise. Today, we are talking about agreements, or as cable news anchors call it, huh? Specifically, we'll be talking about international agreements, or rather, a piece of language in some of them that has blocked environmental and public health policy in many countries before and could threaten climate action in the future. Remember back in January when the United States canceled a key permit for the Keystone XL pipeline, which was intended to transport oil from Alberta, Canada into the United States? I'm not going to argue for or against that decision today, though you can probably guess my feelings about it given that on this podcast I've compared pipelines to hot dogs and frat house basements, but I do want to look at the aftermath of the decision. Based on the headlines in January, it seemed like the Keystone XL pipeline was completely dead. But even after the United States cancelled the permit, the project still had an outside chance. Just listen to what Alberta's premier, Jason Kenney, said on January 1st following the news. We believe that uh, if this is a final decision, that we, can, we have a very strong case uh, to obtain uh, damages, uh, compensation uh, through uh, legal challenges. You heard that right. The premier of Alberta felt that their case to obtain damages through legal challenges, which would mean going after the United States in international court, was strong. This is the United States and Canada we're talking about. I mean, I know Canadians and Americans love to argue about things like Canadian bacon versus regular bacon or Tim Hortons versus Shake Shack, but I thought we were friends. Now, TC Energy, the company behind the Keystone XL pipeline, decided just a few weeks ago to back out of the project, so it doesn't seem like they're going to pursue a legal challenge. But the fact that the Premier of Alberta not only considered it, but decided to share it in a television interview shows how real that possibility was. But you might be wondering, what would that legal challenge be? What international law could the United States possibly be violating by deciding they're concerned about the environmental impact of an oil pipeline and don't want it anymore? Well, it's because of something called investor-state dispute settlements, and that's what we're going to talk about today. What investor-state dispute settlements are, why they pose a concern for the environment, and where we might go from here. And let's start with what investor-state dispute settlements are. Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS, is a system through which foreign investors can sue countries for alleged discriminatory practices. 
In other words, if the two countries have ISDS language in one of their trade agreements, a company from one country invests in the other country, and then the other country creates a policy or makes a decision that harms the company's profits, then that company has grounds to sue. For example, if you owned a giant sardine conglomerate in the United States, then you opened some sardine stores in Canada, and then Canada passed a law to ban sardines, you would have grounds to sue Canada for the profits you lost due to the sardine ban and go to this investment court. Now, you would immediately lose that case, because of course Canada bans sardines, sardines are terrible, and I don't understand how it's possible that they ever existed in the first place, but at least you have that legal recourse. That seems fair, right? If Canada's going to come after your company, you should have some recourse. Well, here's where things start getting tricky. Investor state dispute settlements aren't settled through a court with a judge or jury. Instead, they're settled through arbitration. The investor picks an arbitrator, the state picks an arbitrator, and the two arbitrators pick a third arbitrator. The three arbitrators go into a room and make a decision which the two parties must honor. Again, sounds fair, right? It wouldn't make sense to settle the dispute in the courts of one of the two countries, especially considering that many countries have weak judicial systems or even corrupt governments, so having a sort of third party fixes the problem. Unfortunately, that's not really true. The ISDS arbitrators are actually not judges, but commercial lawyers. It's not unusual for these lawyers to make $1,000 an hour, which is just mind-boggling to think about. I mean, these lawyers might be able to afford cable. Because of these high paychecks, law firms have a vested interest in making sure more and more investor state dispute settlements take place, leading them to encourage companies to file the suits. What's more, the outcomes of the cases are decided in secret, so not even the public can hold these arbitrators accountable for their decisions. So even though, yes, states do pick one of the arbitrators, it's more like when your little brother says you broke his toy and you have to pick either mom or dad to settle it. Obviously, you didn't touch the toy, but regardless of whether you pick mom or dad, you're still getting a timeout. To some, that's as far as they see the criticism of ISDS going. Just listen to economist Gary Clyde Huffbauer explain why, in his view, ISDS is controversial. Well, it's controversial for two reasons. One, it's an acronym. It sounds kind of bad, you know, like NAFTA sounds bad to people. So let's get rid of something bad. That's the kind of the populist reason. Underneath that is the argument that ISDS is favorable to corporations. And some people say, well, if it's favorable to corporations, it can't be good for workers. I disagree with that, but that's a common view. Okay, a few things. First, it's a little hard to say these are populist reasons, since I don't think most people know what ISDS even is, which again is a criticism of the process being so secretive. Second, to the point about acronyms, since when do people hate acronyms? People love acronyms so much that I hear LOL, LMFAO, and ROTFL even more than actual human laughter. We like acronyms so much we shortened I love you to an acronym. You really think if people hate acronyms, you could tell your girlfriend Illy and it wouldn't start a fight about how you won't say I love you? If someone doesn't like an acronym, I promise you, Gary, it has nothing to do with the fact that it's an acronym. But third and most important, 
I agree, there are a lot of people who hate corporations and consider favorable to corporations a con at face value. But in this particular case, favorable to corporations also means unfavorable to countries. For democracies, that means unfavorable to taxpayers and unfavorable to policymakers elected to create laws on their behalf. I'm not saying governments are perfect, a trip to the DMV will immediately show you otherwise, but to use my earlier silly example, if Canadians don't want sardines and get their government to ban sardines, an international court system that forces Canada to use taxpayer money to pay lawyers $1,000 an hour and then pay your sardine company all your lost profits doesn't seem particularly democratic. It's fine to be in favor of ISDS, but for an established economist to bolster his point by pretending the criticisms of ISDS are this flimsy is really low. So far, everything I've said has been theoretical. So what sorts of cases actually play out in real life? I'll run through a few examples I found particularly interesting for you, and let's start with Rockhopper versus Italy. In 2008, the coastal region of Abruzzo, Italy, learned that UK-based oil and gas company Rockhopper Exploration was going to construct an oil platform called Obrina Mar off their coast. Obrinamar would have emitted tons of toxic waste into the water and atmosphere every day, threatened to damage fragile coastal ecosystems by making it more susceptible to earthquakes and landslides, and within a month had already experienced its first oil spill. It's honestly kind of amazing that Rockhopper could start construction of something so hazardous without asking the people first. It's like shaking someone's hand when you have a cold, but instead of a cold, it's a bunch of toxic chemicals, and instead of shaking someone's hand, it's fumigating their entire town. Needless to say, people got pretty pissed off. And in May 2015, 60,000 citizens mobilized, marching through the small town of Lanciano to protest Obrina Mar. Their voices were heard. In December 2015, the Italian parliament banned oil and gas projects within 12 nautical miles of the Italian coast, taking down Obrina Mar, among others. So Rockhopper fought back. In March 2017, they filed an ISDS case alleging Italy violated the 1994 Energy Charter Treaty with the UK and asked for 40 to $50 million in damages for the amount they'd spent on the project, plus 200 to $300 million in lost profits. According to local math professor and activist Maria Rita Dorsona, this ISDS case was a stab to the heart. The arbitration is a stab to my heart. Personally, it's a stab, I think, to the heart of all the people of Abruzzo who fought against Ombrina Mare, and it's a stab to democracy. So the decent, honest thing would be for them to, you know, accept what, as a, you know, community we have decided, and to just decide that Italy should not pay any kind of damages. It is wrong. A stab to the heart and a stab to democracy. Hearing Maria's frustration at the fact that this oil company just won't leave them alone is devastating. It's really, really hard to organize people for a cause. So to have 60,000 people be passionate enough to mobilize and protest against an oil platform off their coast and then now have to pay commercial lawyers $1,000 an hour to decide whether or not they owe the oil company hundreds of millions of dollars is absolutely, as she puts it, anti-democratic. This case is still pending, so we don't know exactly how it will turn out, but there is certainly past legal precedent for Rockhopper to win. And for citizens of Abruzzo like Maria, I can't even imagine how scary that must be. 
And Rockhopper versus Italy is one of many cases not just attacking the environment, but attacking the interests of the public. After Canada banned the export of toxic polychloridated biphenyl waste in the 1990s, U.S. waste treatment company S.D. Myers sued for $53 million in damages under NAFTA and won $6.9 million. In 1997, Canada also banned the import of another toxic chemical called MMT, used as a gasoline additive, and the U.S.-based Ethyl Corporation, which manufactured the additive, sued for $201 million under NAFTA, which led Canada to not only give Ethyl Corporation a $13 million payout, but actually reverse the ban. In other words, ISDS overturned a well-intentioned piece of environmental policy, which is absurd. I mean, can you imagine if a restaurant told you you have to keep buying their food even though their kitchen is dirty? Or a college telling you you have to keep paying the same tuition even though all your classes are on Zoom now? Imagine the outcry. And even in cases where the country wins, it still creates problems. Perhaps the most famous ISDS case was Philip Morris versus Australia, when the large cigarette company sued Australia for passing a plain packaging law, which essentially removes all the glamorous images on cigarette packages and replaces them with messages like smoking kills and images of what smoking does to the body to try to curb the perception among young people that cigarettes are cool. The World Health Organization recommends plain packaging, as studies have found it to reduce smoking. And honestly, why aren't we doing that for more stuff? I mean, why can't hairspray packages say, hairspray makes you look ridiculous, or Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets DVDs say, this is the worst Harry Potter? So Australia passed the plain packaging law, and Philip Morris sued. But here's the thing. Philip Morris International is headquartered in the United States, and the U.S. and Australia don't have any trade agreements with ISDS language. Their Australian subsidiary, Philip Morris Australia, couldn't sue their own country under ISDS, of course, since it's for foreign investors. So Philip Morris actually had their Hong Kong subsidiary, Philip Morris Asia, acquire Philip Morris Australia. Australia did have a treaty including ISDS with Hong Kong, so they pretended to be a Hong Kong company for the case. Honestly, Philip Morris, how dumb do you think we are? I mean, I know you trick people into smoking cigarettes, but come on! Lucky for all of humanity, the arbitrators didn't buy Philip Morris pretending to be a Hong Kong company, and Australia won the case. But the case cost Australia over 18 million US dollars in legal fees. And even though Philip Morris lost, they were only asked to pay half of that, and Australia had to cover the rest. That's $9 million plus dollars of taxpayer money just to get rid of a case that probably could have been solved by Judge Judy yelling at Philip Morris for 30 seconds and calling it a day. Obviously, I can sit here and point to examples all day, and I do encourage you to look more of these up to see how ridiculous they can get, but I'm sure you're wondering, are these really the norm? Is it really this commonplace for companies to attack policies designed to combat climate change or protect the environment and public health? According to the director of the Columbia Center of Sustainable Investment, Lisa Sachs, it is. So not only are the original objectives not being met, but the ways in which the mechanism is being used is costly from a public interest perspective, and in fact undermining the original objective of harnessing investment for development. It's not just a few outliers. The entire mechanism is undermining its intended purpose. 
I certainly don't have the ability to read every single ISDS case ever. So to hear an expert say ISDS is not just failing to protect the public interest, but is undermining its original objective of harnessing investment for development is a big deal. According to the Investment Policy Hub, there are currently 1,104 treaty-based ISDS cases. So to think that according to Lisa Sachs, these are on the whole costing the public interest and undermining development is really scary. And this brings us back to the Keystone XL pipeline. Because as much as these 1,104 cases are scary, the impact of ISDS goes even further. When the United States first tried to nix the Keystone XL pipeline back in 2015, TC Energy, then called TransCanada, filed a claim under NAFTA seeking more than $15 billion in damages. That wasn't the only reason the pipeline was resumed, but it was definitely one of them. And such a claim might not be as scary to a country with a multi-trillion dollar GDP like the United States, but sometimes companies go after countries whose GDP is smaller than the value of the company. For example, Philip Morris also filed an ISDS case against Uruguay for policies aimed to reduce smoking. Philip Morris is valued at $154 billion, and Uruguay's GDP is $56 billion. You might think the country is always the heavyweight in country versus company, but that's regularly not the case. Because of this disparity, a country might back off of a really well-intentioned policy just because of a threat of ISDS or not even try aggressive environmental and health policies to begin with. None of this is to say progress on climate change and other big environmental issues is impossible, but this could be a roadblock if we don't address it. So what can be done? Well, one option, of course, is just getting rid of ISDS as it stands now. That gets tricky. Since ISDS isn't so much an institution as it is a mechanism that's been written into several multilateral treaties, but that's not to say the system can't be changed. In fact, according to James Costello, a U.S. arbitrator and partner at the law firm King & Spalding, there's actually a reform countries are discussing that could make some sweeping changes to ISDS as a whole. One of the central proposals that's on the table for reform is a proposal from the EU to really uh, replace the whole system of investor-state arbitration with a permanent court that would have permanent uh, structure and would have a rotating member of judges on it who would be responsible for resolving these investor-state cases. And that's been a quite a controversial proposal. At first, I was really surprised to hear from someone who's been in these discussions that a reform to turn ISDS into a more permanent court would be controversial. I mean, wouldn't everyone want out of the current system where they're spending so much in legal fees to defend their well-intentioned policies? But as cool as this sounds, I do understand why James Costello would see this controversy. First off, it would end up amending a lot of international treaties. It would require training judges in international law, since that's not necessarily part of a domestic judge's background. And it would require a source of funding, which is always difficult to find on the international stage. Obviously, countries can chip in, but getting countries to pay for global initiatives is even harder than getting landlords to pay for air conditioning, or men to pay for fabric softener. I can easily imagine a scenario where this setup is cheaper and more effective than ISDS as it stands now, but I do see why it could be controversial. 
There's also a lot of discussions about how to better fund the legal fees. Many have advocated for the increased inclusion of third-party funders, where donors and international organizations can help countries cover their costs, or investors can invest in a company's case, with the promise of receiving some of the payout if the company wins the case. I'm actually kind of surprised Vegas hasn't gotten their hands on this yet. I mean, wouldn't it be fun to gamble on international investment court cases? Sure, it might take years to find out if you won or not, but come on, suspense is part of the fun. Of course, there's a lot of trade-offs to consider with third-party investors. Putting more money into the system could lead to more cases if investors don't have to pay the costs themselves. Though investors probably wouldn't invest in cases they don't think they'd win, so it could have an effect either way. It's also important to sort out possible conflicts of interest here. But especially in the case of developing countries, finding ways to give them resources to actually fight cases might ensure that companies can't scare them away from taking action on climate change and other environmental and health issues. And look, I get that whenever we talk about international politics, it quickly feels hopeless. Making changes requires a lot of people from all over the world coming on board. But seeing all the problems that ISDS has created, I have to imagine there's a willingness to work at this. And if we do find a better way to settle these treaty disputes, we'd be better poised to combat climate change, improve our environment and health, save taxpayers a lot of money, and the United States and Canada could stop bickering about chemical waste and pipelines and go back to bickering about bacon. Do you wish snails had cousins that were way bigger, had eight limbs, and squirted ink whenever they got scared? If so, octopuses are for you. Scientists say octopuses are smart, but they're not smart enough to prevent humans from destroying their habitats, overfishing their food, and dumping pollutants into the ocean. Like, come on, octopuses, learn about conservation. Octopuses. Because according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the grammatically correct way to refer to more than one octopus was never supposed to be octopi. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from PBS flagship station the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Kyla Tianhara, Canada Research Chair in Economy and Environment and Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies and Global Development Studies at Queen's University. Dr. Tianhara, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Very pleased to be here. Last October, you published a research report raising the cost of climate action, investor state dispute settlement and compensation for stranded fossil fuel assets. Could you tell us a little bit about the report and what some of the findings were? So there's this system that allows foreign investors when they're operating in another state to take a claim to what's called international arbitration. In this process, a panel of three arbitrators are set up. It's an ad hoc process. They tend to be uh, commercial lawyers or professional arbitrators. Some are former judges. And these, these three people will then decide whether or not uh, an action taken by a government against an investor breaches a, an international treaty. And there's thousands of these treaties around the world. They've been around for a long time, although they've only really been used extensively for, for the last 20 years or so. We wanted to look at whether there's a risk that fossil fuel investors might start taking claims, particularly against climate action. There's been concern in the past that certain forms of climate policy that are sort of on the demand side, like carbon taxes and so forth, might spark disputes. But in particular, we were interested in whether 
the kind of more supply side disputes in terms of actually banning oil and gas exploration or the really sort of direct phase outs, for example, of coal power plants uh, might result in disputes. And so what we did was we tried to look not only at some existing cases that have sprung up, which I can I can talk further about, but also just more generally, how many assets out there are both exposed uh, in terms of the fact that they, they would lose a lot of value if a government decided to phase out coal power in a timeframe that would work for the Paris Climate Agreement objectives, and whether those investments were uh, very clearly covered by investment treaties. And we found that even using a very loose approximation uh, of coverage, which only looked at the ownership in terms of who the parent company was and what country they were from, uh, we found that uh, the vast majority of coal power plants that are in that kind of situation are covered by investment treaties. So we think that that raises some concern that there could be some big claims for compensation uh, that are sort of looming in the future. You've also got a book on ISDS called The Expropriation of Environmental Governance, Protecting Foreign Investors at the Expense of Public Policy. Could you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yes, yeah, so my interest in um, investor state dispute settlement, ISDS, uh, started when I was working on my PhD. Originally, I was meant to um, meant to work on, on global forest governance. That's what my supervisor intended me uh, to write about. But when I started looking uh, for case studies in uh, countries with big forests and uh, sort of governance issues that might be interesting, I um, started with Indonesia and I came across this dispute that was happening at the time uh, between uh, a bunch of mining companies that wanted to have open pit mines in areas of forests that were classified as protected. And I had never heard of uh, investor state dispute settlement before this. I didn't know anything about uh, contracts or, or treaties, but I was just very intrigued. And so I sort of started following it and coming across more cases and then discovered actually there were a lot of these cases under the North American Free Trade Agreement in my own country, Canada, and just sort of became so fascinated by it that it became the whole topic of my, my PhD and that eventually became the book. The main sort of thrust of the book is that we shouldn't be just concerned with the outcomes in actual arbitration processes, which can be very concerning because they can involve huge sums of money, which for particularly developing countries can can be very problematic, but also that just the threat, as appeared to be the case in Indonesia, just the threat was enough to dissuade a government from taking action that would benefit the environment. And we've seen that sort of arise in other contexts since then as well. So for example, Australia was sued by the tobacco giant Philip Morris. And although Australia eventually uh, won that case on somewhat of a technicality, in the meantime, while the case was ongoing, uh, countries like New Zealand said, we're interested in doing the same thing Australia has done in terms of plain packaging, but we're going to hold off and wait to see what happens with these legal disputes. And that, again, is what I'm now sort of concerned could happen with, with climate change, that this will be another uh, reason for governments to delay action. After learning about your work, I was kind of struck by the fact that I hadn't even heard of this before, and I just studied environmental analysis and policy in college for four years. So how big of an impediment do you see ISDS being for climate mitigation in the next few decades? So I think it's it's obviously one of many impediments. <laughs> so I don't want to claim that, uh, you know, the whole reason why we don't have strong climate action is investor state dispute settlement, but I see it as being sort of one of the tools that incumbent industries like the fossil fuel industry have in their, their toolbox. 
And these days it seems to be that they, they are running out of tools because less and less people are willing to accept denial of the science. So now they're employing you know, other mechanisms to, to delay action in terms of you know, arguing for, for particular forms of action that, that are better for them and not necessarily as effective for, uh, for combating climate change and that type of thing. But I do also think legal action is uh, part of their approach and the threat of legal action. And so you can actually see them saying this very clearly in, um, in documents that have been released through Freedom of Information Companies like Chevron have have lobbied lobbied for the inclusion of investor state dispute settlement in agreements, and they have said specifically that it, it helps them to, you know, put pressure on governments and, and convince them not to take um, actions against them. I'm much more concerned about this happening in other countries, particularly in the global south, where they have less capacity to fight these cases, they have less capacity to pay compensation, and really we want that money to be going towards you know, the energy transition. We don't want it to be going to, to paying uh, shareholder dividends for, for companies that are really on their way out. Perhaps hindsight is twenty twenty, but after learning just the setup of ISDS, it seemed pretty obvious to me that it would run into these problems. Why did states create ISDS in the first place? What was it supposed to accomplish? Yeah, so that's an excellent question, and there there has been quite a bit of interesting research uh, done on this. Originally, it was really developed uh, in the sort of immediate post-colonial period, arguably as a way to kind of continue uh, economic colonialism because it was these these treaties were really between global north and global south countries and it was really meant as a way to protect um, economic interests from the global north when they're operating in the global south so the concern was at that time not so much about um, environmental regulations and the like but more about newly uh, emerging countries deciding to actually take back control over their resources the reason why those countries in the global south signed on was because they were led to believe that this would be a really good way to attract investors. And they were interested in investment, foreign investment as a way to, to boost their economic development. The research suggests that sadly that is not at all the case. There's no real evidence that, that investors take this into consideration when they're deciding where to go. They are attracted by things that you know are, would more expect them to be attracted by resources, labor, uh, cheap labor and uh, access to market. But there is also some evidence that these were just signed sort of as a photo opportunity kind of thing. When a diplomat came, it was something for them to do. And no one really understood that there was negative implications uh, until the cases started popping up. And it's surprising to me after we've seen all of this play out because the states are the ones that write the treaties. They're basically just making themselves liable. And even now, after we've seen how ISDS played out, states still keep writing it into agreements. Why are states still supporting ISDS? What's the incentive? So again, that's an area where I think research is is ongoing. Um, I'm currently working on a paper with a a colleague where we look at this sort of fascinating example where in Australia, there's been a lot of debate uh, about um, ISDS, particularly since the, the Philip Morris case, because that was so controversial, having a tobacco company uh, take a claim against a health policy. But the, the two main parties in Australia, the Labour and Liberal parties, have very different approaches. So Labour has said flat out, we will not include ISDS in, in our treaties. And they were actually willing to, to let an agreement with uh, Korea kind of stall because Korea at that time had a pro 
ISDS approach and really wanted it in there. On the other hand, the liberal party has what they term a case-by-case basis approach where they decide whether to have ISDS depending on the particular treaty. And that seems to come down to whether the other side wants it or not, but also whether the mining industry in Australia wants it because they're a pretty powerful lobby, particularly uh, with concerns to the Liberal Party. There is other suggestions. There's still this hang up on this idea that it does attract uh, FDI, even though there's evidence in academic work that shows that it doesn't, that the message still being sort of conveyed is sort of separate from what's actually been shown. Beyond just the outcomes of ISDS cases, I found it really concerning to hear that the arbitrators are typically commercial lawyers getting paid sometimes $1,000 an hour. And as a result, they have a lot of incentives to favor investors. So is there any way for arbitrators to be objective or be held accountable? So the problem uh, is, is that there isn't a lot of, you know, requirements in terms of who can be an arbitrator. Uh, And it is actually possible for Uh, someone that acts as an arbitrator in one case to then act as a a lawyer representing uh, a client in another case. And even though there isn't a a strict precedent in investment treaty arbitration, there's no requirement for them to to take similar decisions based on previous cases, in part because all these cases are based on different treaties that have slightly different wording. It still is common for arbitrators to look at past decisions of other panels when they're making their rulings. And so you could actually have a situation where an arbitrator could make a decision in the case it was on a panel on that could help its case that it was acting as a lawyer on. So there's a very clear conflict of interest there. There's also just sort of a general concern that because only investors can launch these cases, in order for the business to keep going, and it is a very lucrative business uh, for these arbitrators, they have to keep making decisions that kind of expand how these treaties are interpreted in order you know, for, for cases to keep being launched. If they had really narrow interpretations that protected the, the rights of states very strongly, then investors wouldn't see that they had a potential case, so they wouldn't necessarily launch as many. So there, there is a lot of talk about setting up codes of conduct for arbitrators, and there have been some improvements in terms of the, the transparency of the system, so there's more access to awards and so forth. But generally speaking, there is still, it is still problematic, and that's why some places have, so like the EU has suggested de- developing a, a standing court that actually has um, arbitrators that <laughs> are paid just to be arbitrators, and they can't act as lawyers in other cases and so forth. But that really hasn't, it hasn't solved all the problems. And also there's been a lot of pushback from the arbitration community to it. So uh, I personally prefer sort of a a bolder move to actually terminate these agreements because as I I mentioned, they they don't actually have any proven benefits in terms of uh, helping to bring FDI to to countries that need it. So um, I think rather than trying to tweak the system, we should just get rid of it. Whether it's tweaking the system or getting rid of it, as you say, is it something that can be done in one fell swoop or would it have to be treaty by treaty? What would it take for ISDS reform to actually happen? There are some treaties that have a natural sort of expiry date, particularly the the bilateral investment treaties. Uh, And for those, they can just be at that point uh, terminated without any consequence. For treaties that 
aren't expiring, a country can approach another country and say, we can either renegotiate this or, or terminate it. If both countries don't agree, then it can be unilaterally terminated. But then there is what's called a survival or sunset clause in most treaties, which means that it will continue to operate for 15 or 20 years uh, after that termination for investments that already existed. So this is the Energy Charter Treaty, which involves mostly European countries, but also Japan uh, and a few other countries. And it's, it's focused entirely on the energy sector. And the EU and a number of countries in particular within the EU are really pushing to, to try to either carve out fossil fuels from, the, from protection under the treaty or to, to change things enough so that it would align with uh, Paris climate goals and, and sustainable development goals and so forth. But because of the way that treaty is arranged, you really have to have unanimous decisions. And Japan is currently really opposing any kind of changes to the investor state dispute settlement process there. So I think it's likely to be piecemeal. Although if the Energy Charter Treaty does get terminated, I think that could potentially provide sort of a, a catalyst for other actions of that nature. I think definitely um, raising awareness is, is an important aspect. And in particular, because every couple of years we get a big debate uh, about a big treaty. So the Trans-Pacific Partnership or TPP was a big debate. And part of that was about investor state dispute settlement, but also make sure that we don't forget the the smaller agreements that are generally um, negotiated with countries in the global south, where there isn't much of a threat domestically. But I think that our, especially as an environmentalist or people care about environmental justice, that our our view should should extend broader, uh, and we should think about uh, what companies from from our country are are doing abroad, and how they might be violating the rights of indigenous people and polluting places, and then you know, when they get regulated by the government bringing these suits. And I don't think that my government should be facilitating that through through these treaties. And I think that maybe climate change related disputes have the potential to make people think more broadly about that because we do need climate action everywhere. It is the most global issue. If the coal plants don't shut down in India and Indonesia and Vietnam, as well as shutting down uh, you know, in Europe and, and the US and Canada, then we're all going to be in trouble. So I think we want to make sure that those governments have the flexibility uh, and the room to, to take whatever decisions that they need to, to meet their climate commitments uh, without having to feel any pressure from, from companies and, and these particular kind of legal actions. So it would be great to see, especially the, the climate movement, take this up uh, a little bit more because uh, obviously they have, they have a good platform at the moment to, to get the word out about these types of issues that, that trade and investment campaigners don't necessarily have. Dr. Tianhara, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. This wraps up episode 51 of The Sweaty Penguin. Remember, you can get a shout out right here at the end of the show, right now. There's two ways to do it. Leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict. That helps boost us in their algorithms. Or join our Patreon. And if you do that, you'll get not just a shout out, but merch, bonus content, even a chance to win a signed book from one of our experts. Head to patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin to unlock all that cool stuff and help grow the show. Once again, The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from PBS flagship station, the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. 
Today's episode was written by Ethan Brown, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Shannon Damiano, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. Clips today came from CBC News, Peterson Institute for International Economics, Friends of the Earth Europe, American Society of International Law, and Conrad Partners International Arbitration.